But I was over there in the Christian Life Center, and the worship leader, some of you may know, is Daryl Smith. And I met Daryl 18 years ago. He and some friends from our church youth group would come to my backyard and uh, play basketball. And in fact, Daryl and his friends uh, broke one backboard and two rims dunking. But I told them I don't want you to think that much of Daryl's athletic prowess because we had the goal set on nine feet. But I never would imagine that 18 years together later we'd be in a worship a setting together like that. But it just reminds me that some of the most wonderful things that happened are simply unplanned. Uh, many years ago, I went to a high school monthly club meeting, wanted to get checked off in my attendance so I could use it, mail it in with my resume to the colleges to which I was applying. Little did I know when I walked through the door that I would uh, meet a girl there and five years later we would get married and are still married uh, to this day. Some years after that, when I was in my last year of college, I had applied to uh, one graduate school and I asked a professor if he would write an application and that graduate school uh, turned me down. My professor uh, was surprised by that, but he took the same reference and he, and he took uh, my file and called a friend at another school and within 72 hours that school in North Carolina, Duke University, had called me and offered me a free ride to come and to study. I had never set foot on that campus, had never planned any of that. Some of the best things, some of the most exciting things are never planned. And I want to tell you that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who became known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, much of what happened, they had never planned to happen. They had never planned to be taken in the prime of their youth away from their home country, Israel, transported many, many miles to a foreign country, Babylon. They had never been planned to be put in an elite training program and there taught to be a servant to the king. And in that program, they had never assumed that during their time that the king would erect a large statue of gold and said, Worship this statue, said King Nebuchadnezzar, or you will die. And they never planned, these three friends, that they would be caught not worshiping, dragged before King Nebuchadnezzar, and threatened with being thrown in a fiery furnace. And to the threat of Nebuchadnezzar, this is what they said in chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If the God we serve is able to deliver us, then he will deliver us from the blazing furnace and from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It strikes me that all these things that had happened to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they had never planned for, but they became later the stuff of miracle. So much that happens in our life, we never planned for. It's beyond our control, and yet it can be the occasion for great movements forward and things that border on the miraculous. But they're usually beyond our planning and our orchestration. In fact, if you were to ask me, how did this happen for these three men? How were they delivered from the fiery furnace? I would say it was not by their planning. For if you read this passage carefully, all the planning is done by the Babylonians. They planned their attack on Israel. They planned the destruction of the temple. They planned to cart off the best and brightest of Israel and haul them to Babylon. They planned to enter them into the king's service. They planned to erect a statue of gold to which everyone must worship or die. They planned the execution 
of these three faithful men. It's all about their plans, not about the plans of these three men. And I think it is important for us, children still of the Enlightenment, who have built our lives on our reasoning, our logic, our ability to plan and control, to stop for a moment and realize that much of the best that will happen to us is beyond our planning, just as it was for these three men. We need to recognize biblically the limitations of planning in our life. James puts it this way in chapter 4. Woe to you who say that we're going to go into a town and do this and this, make a profit and then go there. He said, do you not realize? What are you thinking, basically, he says. Do you not realize that you're just like a vapor? You're like a mist and you're here today and gone tomorrow. And what you ought to say is, if God wills, we'll be able to do these things. Jeremiah is more clear than that when chapter 29, Jeremiah says, quoting God, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and for a future. The Bible is always about God's plans, never about our plans, but always about what God does. And when I look at these three men and the fiery furnace, I see how little of what we would call conventional planning they actually do. First thing I notice is in most organizations I'm part of, the church or in my family, a lot of times when we make decisions, we plan by doing a cost-benefit analysis. Have you ever done that? Draw the line on the paper and the plus on one side and, the, and all the things that are good and the minus and all the down on the other side. And I never see them do this. I don't see these three guys sitting down together and go, well, on the good side, this could dry out our sinuses. You know, on the bad side, it's a burn from which it may take a while to recover. They don't do that. It's very short on analysis. No exit strategy at all. What if it's too hot in there? Never a question. It's not about anything they can control at all. Most of the planning that I see in churches and families like mine, we're usually aimed at equilibrium and trying to keep things going the way they've been going, if not maybe just a tad better. But I never see in their discussions a desire to return to equilibrium. I never see them say, oh, how can we use this to get back to Israel? Or how can we use this and still stay in the good graces of King Nebuchadnezzar? There's never a desire for that. If I were to sum it up for you, I would sum it up this way. I look at these three men and I'm stunned by the fact that they really don't care about outcomes. Outcomes are not significant to them and they, they give up worrying about what's going to happen. They just decide to do what they're supposed to do. And wherever it ends up, it'll end up. The king says, I'm going to throw you into the fire, and let's see what your God will do then. And their response is, hey, if our God gets us out, great. But if not, we just want you to know we're still not worshiping you, and we're not worshiping the false gods. They give up that desire to have a specific outcome. They give up the desire to try to control events. You see, everything that's happened since their teenage years has been beyond their control anyway. Carted off to Babylon, your temple torn down, thrown into the king's service, threatened with death. It was all beyond their control anyway. They're under no illusion that they can do something that's going to control the future events. All they can do is give way to God in that present moment. And I think that's a profound lesson for individuals and for churches to learn. And that is basically there are limits to what we can plan and control. And basically we have across North America in the 21st century the best and brightest churches that we can humanly build. And if you go back to my statistics two, month, two weeks ago, the best and brightest that we can build ain't cutting it. Because they're devoid. 
They're devoid of the one thing that, for which we cannot plan and control, God's presence. And so my encouragement is we need to learn from the church in China. I, I love what Philip Yancey talks about, a missionary that had got kicked out of there in 1950. And he said, we felt so bad when we got kicked out of China. We left them there and there were no more seminaries to train their pastors. No more pastors to lead their meetings and teach them how to have meetings. No more people to show them how to worship. All we left them with was the Holy Spirit and nothing else. Fifty plus years later, the missionary goes back to China and discovers there are 30 times more Christians than there were. 60 million Christians today in China. And the missionary looks at Yancey who looks back at him and observes Riley. I guess the Holy Spirit must be holding his own in China. Without our seminaries, without the best education and training and plans we can bring, things are still happening. So what am I recommending in our life and in our church? That we're passive? Certainly not. Because I think what we see in these three men is not so much planning and an effort to control, but we do see preparation and an effort to stay faithful. Ever since they were carted from Babylon, they never quit praying. To Babylon, They never quit praying to the, the real God of the universe. They never quit worshiping, even though they no longer had a temple. And they kept their kosher diet, even though all the people in the elite training program were supposed to be eating the king's diet. They stayed faithful. They stayed ready for whatever God would do. And here's what God did. They said, King, you can do what you want, but we're not going to worship you. He was furious and he said, all right, I want the fire seven times hotter. Seven is a symbolic number of the Bible. So basically the king's saying, as hot as you can get it and then some. The best we can do, jack up the heat. So hot that the people that put them into the fire burned. And the king looked and the three men didn't burn. Not only that, to the king's amazement, there was a fourth present in, presence in the fire with them. But that fourth presence doesn't surprise us, does it? Because we know this. That whenever things are teetering on the verge of chaos, whenever things are truly out of control, that's when God says, I'll work there. We're told in the creation story that when the world was formless and without, and uh, was void, without form, it was just chaotic, God said, I can do that, I can use that. We're told that when the people had escaped Egypt and ran head smacked, Long into the Red Sea and had the Red Sea in front of them, the soldiers behind them, God said, I can do something with that. We're told that when Jesus came into a world that was filled with death and sin and guilt and worse than guilt, shame, God said, I can do something there. The biblical story is that God seems to rarely show up when we try to preserve the equilibrium. But God seems to be right there on the front row when things really get out of control. And there God is, working and moving. Let me try to explain that another way. Last two summers, I've been able to spend a few days in Maui. In the summer of 2006, when we took uh, our youngest son to Maui, the waves were like Corpus Christi. Yeah, it was a couple feet, and it was okay. Well, uh, one of our sons didn't get to go, so we went back this year with the 20-year-old son and the 15-year-old son. The waves were 10 to 12 feet. They would get out there and the waves would slam them into the shore, but first the waves would carry them for 25, 30 feet into the shore and they'd get up and run back out there again. And I noticed this about my kids and about me. 
we had no control over the waves. If I could have made 10-foot waves in the summer of 2006, I would have done it. We spent a lot of money to go there. But I couldn't. It was beyond my control. And I noticed this about the surfers in Maui. They can't control the waves either. But here's what they do. They don't plan, but they prepare. And they stay prepared. They watch the weather. They practice their stances. They wax their boards. And when the time is right, they get wet. Much of our life are waves that are created by other people or by God, and they're out of our control. And we can't plan for them. But we can, with God, decide that we'll faithfully ride them out and see where they go. God is creating a really huge wave in the 21st century for the faith. And the wave is not necessarily to my liking. The wave of the 21st century is that basically North Americans aren't real fired up about church. They don't really trust pastors. It's not a big time for them. But as a part of that wave, there is more interest in God than there has ever been in our nation, uh, say, last hundred-year history. And if we are faithful and quit planning on ways to make them come be like us and decide to ride the wave out to where they are and be in relationship and dialogue with them, I believe miraculous things will happen. I believe God's creating waves in your life, and by the time you get to the parking lot or maybe three days from now when you're at home, something's going to happen, and it's going to be beyond your control, and you're going to wish that you could have planned it otherwise. But if you're open and prayerful and faithful and right, it it may lead you places you had never anticipated. Most of you know one of my favorite quotes is on my desk. and I, I give it to you annually. You can probably parrot it back to me. So I'll condense it. Many scholars believe the turning point of the Civil War was the Battle of Gettysburg. Many scholars believe the turning point of the Battle of Gettysburg was at a place called Little Round Top. And many scholars believe that Little Round Top it was won by the Union Army because of the leadership of a man from Maine, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who repulsed the attackers from Alabama and Texas with no ammunition, simply with a fixed bayonet charge that held the day. Now, I tend to believe it was more of the Alabama guys that got driven off and not Texas, but that's another story. But here's what you need to know. As the troops are marching toward Pennsylvania, going toward who knows what, they don't even know. They certainly don't know they're going to be the hinge point of the entire Civil War on that little piece of land. Chamberlain says to his group, composed of soldiers and deserters who have been caught and brought back to him, he says this. He says, we cannot know or control the future very much, but we can determine what kind of people we will be when the future comes. And they were ready. They had not planned, but they were prepared in that moment. And it'll be the same for us. 1928. Alexander Fleming is working in a cramped laboratory on the fourth floor of St. Mary's Hospital. His office is cramped. He's got all sorts of projects going on, paper and Petri dishes everywhere. But it's time for vacation, so he's leaving. But he leaves the window open to sort of keep things aired out while he's on vacation. While the window is open, some other experiments are being conducted with mold on the sixth floor or seventh floor. Mold comes through the window into Fleming's office. He comes back from vacation in a couple weeks and looks, and something strange has happened to his Petri dish with bacteria. And that is he notices where the mold is, it's almost like a bacteria-free zone, a bacteria-free moat around the bacteria where the mold had been. 
So he gets out his microscope and studies it, and lo and behold, he has discovered penicillin. Now, years later, he's taken to a very nice, large laboratory, spotlessly clean, windows shut down, doors locked, only uh, authorized personnel admitted, and two white-coated people are taking him around. They're saying, Dr. Fleming, imagine all the things you could have discovered in a lab like this. And he is said to have remarked, not penicillin. <laughs> there will be things in our life that will be messy. They will be chaotic. They'll be beyond our plans. I'm encouraging you to stay in there. Be prayerful, faithful, obedient, courageous when necessary. And by the way, leave the window. 